The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. All right, guys. Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and I was asked to tell the story of my connection to Donald Trump from my youth. (sighs) Let me start with this. This is not a political segment because before he was President of the United States before all the drama with his Twitter and stuff, I knew the Donald. And, um, you know, I think everybody knows where I stand politically right now. So it's not going to be about politics. Because where you stand with him, whether you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump, that's not really relevant to this. But I am going to tell you a little bit about what happened as a kid with Donald Trump. And uh, some people know this story. Some people know parts of it. But let's start with this. You know, before there was McManus and Amadeo, and before I was with Grable and Associates, and before everything happened, we lived in Ducktown, Atlantic City. And Ducktown in the 90s was a pretty rough place. Um, There's Pitney Village, which was a housing project, which was one of the most dangerous housing projects in Atlantic City. We were um, possibly the last white family in the neighborhood. I don't know what it's like to be a minority. I know during that time period, what it was like to be different. And there was this little wooden fence separating us from Pitney Village. And it was, um, it was rough. And in our little alley, it was Willow Avenue, right? Little tiny apartment we had. If you looked up, you saw the big red light that said Trump Plaza on it. At that time in Atlantic City, Trump owned um, four casinos. He owned Taj Mahal, which was his baby, Um, World's Fair, Trump Marina, and Trump Plaza. And Trump Plaza always kind of felt like home to me because, you know, we were poor and Aunt Mary used to say to me, one day you could tell people Donald Trump was your neighbor because you would look up at that Trump Plaza sign. And as stupid as it sounds, that Trump Plaza sign um, represented like hope. That amidst this poverty, there's this multi-million dollar gambling cathedral. And within an eight minute walk, Maybe one day we could get out of here and have a taste of what that was like. 
So in those ways, you know, it was like, a, it really was a sign of hope and things were rough as a kid. Um, I wouldn't trade my aunt and mom for anybody in the world. I miss them every goddamn day. But I will tell you, um, growing up in Ducktown during that time period, I know things have changed a little bit today, but growing up there, um, things were just rough. We used to live at my address so I could play baseball in Ventnor. Ventnor, that's another story. But it was always kind of like <clears throat> you were the outcast, you know? Because in Ventnor, which was quasi-suburbs, if you would, they knew you weren't one of them. And they didn't like you. Um, back home, it was sort of a war zone. And it was just a rough place to be. And the Trump Plaza sign always kind of gave you hope that, hey, one day, you know. And one day... <clears throat> I was a sophomore in high school. It was this really rainy day. And I got off the Jitney. The Jitney in Atlantic City, like these little mini buses, right? You had your Jitney tickets or you paid your 75 cents and the Jitney took you here to there. And I got off the Jitney and there were two kids that were just out of harbor fields and harbor fields was juvenile detention back in south jersey and they came at me and um it's a story i think i kind of blocked out a lot but i will say this i escaped that day and i escaped by understanding where a tunnel was between trump plaza and the atlantic city convention center and um, I looked at it, it was like some kind of weird connection. And I remember as a kid one day, I was riding my bicycle home from baseball practice. And this is from Vetner, so it was a hell of a hike. <clears throat> and it got late and it was raining. And um, I drove, I rode my bike, I should say, by the valet part of Trump Plaza. And there was Donald Trump. I'm, I don't know, I'm 12, 13, something like that. And he's talking to the valet drivers. And uh, they're having a bad night. And he gave them a bunch of cash and said, hang in there, guys. Things are going to be good. And he saw me. And we just made eye contact. And he said, um, how far have you been riding that bike, kid? And I said, I came from Ventnor. And he laughed, and he's like, you're a tough kid, because you're going to go places. And he got in his limo, and he drove away. Weird. Go home, I tell Aunt Mare, <clears throat> hey, Donald Trump was impressed that I was riding my bike home from Ventnor. And um, we had a laugh about it, and that was that. Um, You know, <clears throat> there's so many horrible things about Atlantic City. So many things I could say from my youth. When people tell me how fearless I am in court or they see me on Zoom or uh, they see me in court and I say, man, this guy, he's got no fear. It's because I learned how to mass fear in Atlantic City. 
growing up where we grew up, it was it was a war zone. That's all it was. I mean, that's all I could tell you. Say anything you want. Um, it was always in the top ten most dangerous cities, and you know, on the boardwalk, the tourists were there. Off that boardwalk, you go a few blocks back then. It was bad, and it was bad where we lived. And again, the whole Trump Plaza thing was always like this, like that little glimmer of hope that hey, something good could happen here, you know. Um, things, you know, they happen. I graduate high school and go to college, and I'm working in Tropicana. And uh, I'm working at TROP, and I'm full-time in school, and I'm working full-time. I remember 16 credits at Stockton, and working 40 hours at TROP, and I'm on the Union Negotiation Committee. And uh, I got to meet Donald Trump again after the Union Negotiation Committee. And it was interesting. And I, you know, I don't think he knows me from Adam, but here's Mr. Trump. He showed up the last couple days in the periphery of where the committee was negotiating. And I'm like a kid, right? I mean, I'm still in college. And the last day of negotiations, he grabs me by my left. And he said to me, B. And at first I'm thinking, B, how the hell does he know my nickname? And Donald Trump's like, Purveyor of information, man. He said, B, you're too big for this town. And I'm saying, Mr. Trump this, Mr. Trump that. I'm talking about all our union issues. He goes, look, what you say is not going to mean a hell of beans in the morning. He said, but you need to go to law school. He goes, there's something special about you. There's something amazing about every guy in the room is going to want to be you or get to you and don't waste that talent. You know, and at that time, we were um, trying to get out of Atlantic City. I was saving money to get my aunt and my mom a house in Ventnor. And where we actually were renting a house from, the people who owned the house got a good deal of money from the Casino Redevelopment Association, and they were supposed to give some of that money to the tenants. Of course, they didn't. And things were rough. I remember working so many hours just trying to save up to get our house on Dudley Avenue, which was eventually destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. And then finally, me and Jules sold it about a year ago after it was rebuilt. House was a nightmare, but it was also a sign of our first big accomplishment. My first big accomplishment was to get my family the f out of Ducktown and buy that house in the suburbs. And, um, it was a rough time period, you know, and having Donald Trump say to me that go to law school and tell me who I was, you know, you're it. You're the guy everybody's going to want to be. And, you know, we stayed in touch a little bit over the years. And, you know, when I, when I think of Trump, and I don't want to make this political because I disagree with so many things that have happened politically. 
But I'm going to tell you, getting to know the man a little bit, personally, not the guy I see on TV, um, not the one who's disappointed me in a lot of ways with some of the things he said, and the one who is a Twitter icon, or however you want to put it. I remember being a scared 13-year-old riding my bike home. And he told me I was tough. I remember running for my life about 15 years old and hiding between the convention center and his casino. I remember seeing those bright red Trump Plaza signs glaring down. It was 2 o'clock on a Saturday morning and you're depressed and that sign was glaring and you thought, huh. And um, I remember at about the age of 21, being in college and saving to get my aunt and mom out of Atlantic City and uh, him telling me how I'm going to be a star if I go to law school. And he, I mean, you know, there were so many people he came in contact with the fact that he pulled me to the side and spoke to me for a few minutes. And we, you know, we did stay in touch a little bit throughout the years. And, you know, we don't talk anymore. But I do say that there's been times in life, agree with his politics or not, when Donald Trump has believed in Bill Amadeo when nobody else did. And on a personal level, I'll always appreciate that. You know, when you um, when you were deemed poor white trash from the ghetto, and one of the most powerful people in the world sees something in you, and not only sees something in you, but encourages you, and tells you to go for it, and tells you that he sees something in you. I mean, you can't put a price tag on that. The fear of Atlantic City will never leave me. And I thrive off that at times. When I'm in court and like I get too passionate or I get crazy or I just become the true believer in criminal defense, I mean, I look back to my youth. And, you know, and Scott Grable said something one time which was really powerful. Scott and I were talking, and I had a big hearing coming up. And I was scared for this hearing. It was like 2018. And Scott said, going to this circuit court is nothing to be scared of. Growing up at Pitney Village was something to be scared of. And that was a powerful moment. Um, and I know that... Scott and I have had our screaming matches, but he's been an amazing role model to me. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be in Krim Law. You know, and there's moments like the Grable conversation. There's moments like the Trump conversation when if you really watch and listen, these things can just help advance you. And I, whatever the feelings are towards Mr. Trump as a politician, I will tell you that 
his support. Not economically, I never got a dime from the guy, okay? But the emotional support he displayed to me at a time when I needed it is something I'll always be grateful for. Um, I won't sit here and debate how I feel about his policies. And I won't sit here and agree with many things he said. And I'm not going to sit here and bash him for a while. I'm going to tell you that he didn't owe me a goddamn thing. And he told me in a lot of ways I was going to get out of that place. He told me I was special. He told me I was going to be a star. He didn't have to. You know. And everything in this world is subjective. Am I an amazing lawyer or do I suck? Well, that depends on who you talk to. You know? Um, do I play too hard? Do I get hurt emotionally in these cases? Yeah. I mean... To care as much as I do on every case is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because you could feel how much I care for the clients. It's a curse because it emotionally exhausts the hell out of me. And it's 9.19 on Saturday night and I'm going to be working a few more hours because I care that much for my clients. But that work ethic is also something that trumps all that, you know... He believed in me at a time when very few of anybody did. I will tell you <clears throat> where we came from. My Aunt Mare, may she rest in peace. My mom, who I miss every day. Mom had me real young. In a lot of ways, mom was like a sister and Aunt Mare was the mother. My grandfather. My Uncle Sam. And uh, Miss Gandea, who was an amazing journalism teacher from high school, who told me I was going to go places. The first four people are blood. And blood, you feel in some ways have an obligation, you know, to cheer you on. Miss Gandia was just a special human being. She was not a mother figure to me. I remember when I was going to quit mock trial my junior year. They didn't want me on the team. I think I was the only Gentile on the team. And Atlantic City High was really, you know, like the Atlantic City and Brigantine kids went this way. The Margate and Venter kids went that way. And mock trial was all the, um, it was elite Jewish students from Margate and this Italian kid from Atlantic City. And I was going to quit. I didn't like them. They didn't like me. And Miss Scandia grabbed me by the throat. And she said to me, you go the f back up there. You show them who you are. We're all counting on you. I didn't know what that meant back then. You know, Miss Gandia, black woman from Virginia with the last name of Gandia, she was one tough woman. She saw everything in her life. And she bestilled so much encouragement on her students, her inner circle. I mean, miss her every day. I always feel like Gandhi is somewhat watching over me. But I consider Miss Gandhi a family. I don't consider Donald Trump family. He was an outsider, you know? He was somebody who didn't know me from the man to the moon. Again. And I know I've said things about him out of frustration. 
Um, but I feel I owe him a debt of gratitude on a lot of levels. We may never talk again. He may not even remember me for all I know at this point. But the connections we've had in life have been powerful. There was a time we were on a first name basis and I've done my thing and he's done his thing and you know obviously there's a lot of differences there. Um, I don't think I'll ever achieve his notoriety. I don't think he'll ever understand what makes me tick. But we did connect a little bit. He was a much older, powerful individual who took an interest in me. And other than the loved ones I named, he was someone, and I can't stress this enough, he didn't have to give me any encouragement. And he did. So knowing what Atlantic City was like, the obstacles and the pain. And I mean, there's far worse stories than mine, but I'm going to tell you, in any success story, it's not just the individual and the work ethic. There's people that played a role in it. Maybe people that helped you financially, maybe people that helped you emotionally, maybe people that just pat you on the back during that rough day. And matter how you feel about him, he was one of those people for me. And I will be forever grateful for that. Um, it kind of hurts me emotionally that I have said some of the things I've said about him politically. I will always speak my mind. And there's been things that have been done that have disgusted me with Donald Trump. But I'll never forget the debt of gratitude I feel I kind of owe him for taking interest when he didn't have to. And it wasn't just me. There were other kids in that area that he gave encouragement to. I get it. I'm going to hear people with the hatred towards him, and it's quite often justified. But I do feel there is another side of the coin. And I'm not saying that other side of the coin deserves your vote, because God knows I didn't support him in the last election. Um, I don't feel the other side of the coin warrants some of the things he has said and done. But I think it is warranted to know that there have been good things that he's done and taking interest in me is something I will be forever grateful for. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. And I'm sorry, I'm laughing already because I saw some of John Granger's um, comments. John Granger, a good friend of mine, went to law school together. When I was in the Innocence Project, he was in the 60-plus clinic. We were two of the harder workers there. We both dealt with a lot of bullshit, Cooley. And um, today, we're going to talk about Jumpstart which was Cooley's orientation. The Orc Fairs. And the Cooley SBA, Student Bar Association. All right, let's start with this. Let's be clear. 
there's a very mixed relationship I have with Cooley. Extremely mixed. And here's why it's mixed. I'll always be appreciative they gave me a shot, right? I'll be grateful for that. They gave me a shot. And I went to law school there. However, they gave you a shot for $150,000 in student loans. They didn't give you a shot because you interviewed really well. And there were so many ass at Cooley. When I'm talking about ass, I'm not necessarily talking about the students. I'm talking about a lot of the administration. Let me break it down. Orientation is what they call jumpstart. And Jumpstart was this program where the first termers all came together. And there were a few contradictions at Jumpstart. I remember calling Jerry Daly, may he rest in peace, like a mentor to me. And I called him, I said, man, this is really weird. And he's like, why is it so weird? I said, well, first of all, I dressed up. And I'm seeing a lot of people here in, like, sweatpants. And that was confusing because they told us professional decorum. I don't know. And back then, I only had like, a couple suits to my name, but I figured you had to dress up for orientation. And that was different. And we go to this orientation, right? And there were some speakers. There was Dr. Patricia Williams. Wilson, excuse me. You've heard me talk about before. And Dr. Wilson ran the um, the ARC, the Academic Resource Center. And she would get on her soapbox and say how I'm not even a lawyer, but I know what makes good lawyers. Very arrogant woman. Um, just a miserable human being. And she told us how so many of us were going to fail out of law school. She says, you know, so many of you in this room right now do not have what it takes to be coolie. To be coolie material is what she said. I found that really interesting, like, to be coolie material. Now, in my mind, I'm glad I'm in law school, right? Cool. I'm there. I'm in the club. But, I don't know. I applied to a bunch of schools. Coolie's the one that took me. I'm happy about that, but now I'm being told before day one in the classroom how many of us don't have what it takes. Then Professor Buttry was there. Patri Professor Buttry was as angry, she seemed very angry at orientation. And she was screaming at us a lot. Um, you could see her outside on constant cigarette breaks. And very cryptic individual. Um, years later, she would bash my tutoring company and bash me in many levels, but Dr. Wilson was speaking for five minutes, and Professor Buttrick just said, I just took eight pages of notes. That's what you have to do to make it at Cooley. And I'm thinking, what did this woman take notes on? Okay. So it's kind of odd. And then there was um, Paul Zielinski. Dean Zielinski. Dean Z. Dean Z also explained how he wasn't a lawyer. He had like a doctorate in education or something. And Zelensky says to us, look to your left, look to your right. Because one of those three won't be there come graduation day. 
I'm thinking, huh. Now, I don't know. There's a few things go through my mind at this point, right? Number one. They don't seem really excited about this class. You know, they're kind of saying how we're not going to make it. So many people fail out of Cooley. I don't know if that's like a ringing endorsement. I mean, I don't know. If I, would, if I was recruiting somebody for a criminal law firm... I wouldn't say, oh man, the cases are impossible and you're not going to make good money, but you should join. That's what it felt like. And then I started thinking, Zelinsky and Dr. Wilson are not lawyers. But they're in the administration at Cooley. And I don't know. I wasn't a business mind at this point, but I'm thinking to myself, uh, do they know how to run a law school? Like, shouldn't lawyers be running law schools? I always say that you wouldn't want to put me in head of the math department at U of M. Because it's the Bobby Reyes case, you don't even want me going to U of M. But that's neither here nor there. Why are these non-lawyers such great predictors of who's going to be a good lawyer? And Zelensky's telling us we're going to fail out. Dr. Wilson's saying we're going to fail out. Then they serve us this box lunch. Remember that box lunch? It was like a bad turkey sandwich and a... Drenched pickle with a bag of chips and a soda. And it was interesting as we're eating this box lunch. We break off into these groups. And the groups were fascinating. You had two types of people, right? You had the people that had this huge sense of entitlement. Then you had this people that were like, woe is me, I'm not going to make it through law school. So I'm sitting with this group, and uh, we're talking football, where we're from, who we are, like a meet and greet. And this one kid's really cocky, and he says how he's going to argue before the Supreme Court one day, and he knows it's going to happen. I'm just nodding my head, taking it in, okay? This other girl says... I'm never going to make it through. Did you hear what um, Dean Zelinsky said and what Dr. Wilson said? We're all doomed. Hmm. And then they all decide we're going to go drinking that night. And they say, do you want to join us? You're not saying too much. I said, no, I'm not going to go drink with you guys. Number one, I don't drink. But cool, have fun. Uh, number two, I'm going to the library to study tonight. And they said, why are you going to study tonight? Class didn't even start yet. So well, we got our first assignments. Like, we don't understand. The dean said how we should have fun today. And this is where things start to get weird, right? The deans told us we should have fun. But they also predicted we're going to fail out. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what the f*** is going on here? So I'm pissed off that Zelensky and Dr. Wilson are saying we're going to fail. So now I'm even more motivated. I'm going to the library to study tonight. F*** you, I'm not failing out of law school. And other kids took it as an opportunity to drink and socialize. I don't know. It was a very weird environment. And when we get the Cooley at orientation, there was like 1,250 people in this orientation, right? It was a large class back then. At the time, it was the largest class in the history of law schools. You get there, they place you based upon geography. 
which I found extremely weird. Because they're given this speech, right? This is where Cooley was a contradiction from the jump. They're giving this speech how you need to mingle with people and meet people from different states and do this and do that. We will now have our seating charts, and if you're from New Jersey, you go over here. If you're from Michigan, you go over here. So we need to be diverse and mingle, but we're going to segregate you. Okay. So I'm sitting with my Jersey crew. There's Brian Larky. And Brian Larky, God bless him, like a big brother to me. Larky is sitting there. He's a retired state trooper in New Jersey. He's got his state trooper gear on, and we're talking about where we're from. I'm from Atlantic City. He's from North Jersey. We're shooting the shit. We just clicked from day one. And Largy said, you believe the shit they're saying up there? And I just got it. I was like, okay, this is somebody I'm going to be friends with for life. We're going to have each other's backs, blah, blah, blah. It's really interesting because Jumpstart was like a three-day process, and they gave you the Nelson Denny test day two. I did really bad on Nelson Denny test. And Dr. Wilson called me and so many others into the office and said, hey, you're not going to make it through. I'll never forget Dr. Patricia Wilson saying to me, and I quote, the New Jersey educational system is not as strong as the Michigan system. And even though you did okay in Jersey, you're not going to make it through Cooley, and we know this by the Nelson Denny test. She goes, so perhaps you should save some money and go to Lansing Community College and pick up a trade. And I'm like, who is this woman that tell me I'm not going to make it through? And I explained to her, well, I was tired when I took the Nelson Denny test, and I'm not sure that has anything to do with what type of lawyer I'm going to be. And she says to me, listen, kid, I like you, but I can tell you right now, you are not cooly material, and you will not make it through law school. You'll never be a successful lawyer. So, save your money now. Okay. Good thing to say to a kid, third day in a new state. Appreciate that, Doc. And Zelensky speaks to us like day three, right? And he announces how one of your classmates already got kicked out of cool i'm like jesus christ what did they get kicked out for they were drinking last night and they got into a car accident and they got what we call an o-u-i-l mm -hmm. so don't drink and drive at cooley now drinking and driving is never a good idea i mean it was kind of weird that deans were telling us to go out and drink that night but this one kid got kicked out and then Zelensky, the final day of orientation which was August of 2004, he made this video. And it was um, the song Switchfoot, This Is Your Life. And it was a video of all of us, right? And all the different pictures. And, like, you could see me, like, crouched down in a seat, like, reading a textbook. You could see other kids, like, sleeping. And all I'm thinking to myself is, if you're sleeping at orientation... I like my chances here. I'm going to beat that guy. It's very odd, man. Orientation was like joining a cult. We are cool. Hear us roar. Remember, Dean Sarconi came to give a speech. I never liked Dean Sarconi. 
he was I teach civil procedure and I'm this and I'm that. He eventually went to a uh, unaccredited school in Indiana and it closed down. He was a pompous guy. He was in charge of like who would get tables for tutoring years later and he would refuse to give me a chance to present my tutoring company. He was a pompous prick. Like he was sitting up there like he was king of the world. And I learned it was like when I learned about law school this day, those couple days were okay. This is where geeks basically are gonna be cool. These three years are gonna be like the time of their life, like high school was the time of their life for a half ass athlete. And I'm gonna use this experience to get where I need to be, but I'm never going to basically embrace myself with that coolie pride. And it was really odd because we start separating ourselves, right? Who's the smart kids? Who's not smart? Who are like the failed jocks? Who's this and who's that? And I had all sorts of different friends or pockets of acquaintances, I guess you could say, but I just wasn't buying in any of the bullshit. I knew from day one this was my shot. I got a chance to become a lawyer. Okay, I'm going to make the most of this. That's all there is to it. The people talking on the stage, in my opinion, were assholes. Uh, most of the professors I met I didn't like. And I'm living in a bad apartment first term. And all I'm thinking to myself is, okay, you are here for one purpose. You got to get that JD. Then you got to pass the bar. So put all the bullshit to the side. And that was orientation. People say to me how there's like this disrespect for Cooley. There's a lot of disrespect I have for Cooley. I remember being broke and applying for a $15 an hour job. And this weird guy, Scott Harrison, who was a, a human resource manager back then, wouldn't give me the job. $15 an hour if I had two bars I passed already. I mean, Cooley's a bitter pill, man. Very bitter pill. For every Mark Dotson and James Peden, people who played a role, and Al Lynch, who played a role in positive aspects of your future, there was a Norman Fell, there was a Patricia Wilson, uh, a Charles Sircone, so many people that were so bitter with their own life that they wanted to pull you down. You know, when I see some of them today, it's just like kind of comical. I mean, I don't know what Cooley looks for in their alums. I know, I win a murder trial, I don't get a call. One of my classmates self-publishes a science fiction book and they put him in benchmark. I mean, there's a reason you only got 500 students right now. I mean, it's you have no respect for your successful alumni. And, uh, yeah. That was orientation. Now... After orientation, things started to get weird, the org fairs. The org fairs were the organizational fairs. And what they were, were they were like the groups. There was like, um, BOSA, uh, the Italian American Society, the Animal Society, the Sports Law Society. Basically, they were all these people that came together. Like, they were fraternities, right? They used to put all their signs up at this fair. And people were more interested in the org fairs than they were in studying, which always blew me away. I remember 
my first serious girlfriend in law school. We met at an orc fair. And we saw each other in passing, right? And, uh, we saw each other in passing, and I'm walking by the Cooley Center to go to the library. And she comes up to me, and she goes, hey, do you want to join this club? I said, nah, I'm good. She goes, why don't you want to join this club? So I'm going to study, I don't have time for clubs. She's like, what do you mean I don't have time for clubs? We gotta network and socialize and do this and do that. And I was like, well, if we don't make it through law school, none of this bull matters. Right there, she was intrigued. And I went off to the library, and that was the first time her and I had interaction. But it was always funny at these org fairs. Tutoring companies would come out, and bar prep companies would come out, and they'd serve these bullshit box lunches and tell you why you should join this group or join that group. And it was like, I don't know, man. Like, here's the thing. We were all fourth-tier law students. And what that means, guys, in English, is nobody else really wanted us, right? So we should have been bonded together. Let's work as a team. Let's go kick some ass. wasn't like that. What we did was we isolated ourselves. Who was on law review? Who was on dean's list? Who was in student government? They found these niches, like these pockets of protection. The whole point of law school is one, one agenda. You get the grades in college to take the LSAT. You take the LSAT to get into law school. You get the grades in law school to sit for the bar. You pass the bar in character and fitness to be able to practice. Now follow me here, okay? College, the LSAT, your grades in law school, and your passage of the bar exam. None of these things have a goddamn to do with the practice of law. They're just these hurdles that cost people money to get into the club. And I understood this at a very early part of my law career. I'm like, okay, so law school is nothing more of three years of giving me the opportunity to sit for the New Jersey bar examination. That's it. That's all this is. I'll make friends along the way. I'll get laid along the way. I'll play some softball along the way. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is do I have the grades to sit for the bar exam? And then I found my crew because I found like-minded people. Okay. Let's do study groups on Friday night at 10 o'clock. Because this is our shot. This is an opportunity to chase our dreams. And if you're on the same page, cool, let's do this. If you're not, then please get the hell out of my way. Came this group. The haves and the have-nots. And then it was funny because the guys that were like winning book awards and were on top of the world in law school... They thought that was their ticket to stardom. And I remember being in a group one day, and obviously grades were important for one reason. If you didn't get the grades, you couldn't sit for the bar exam. It's like going from JV to varsity, going from the minor leagues to the major leagues. If you won 
20 book awards in law school and couldn't pass the bar, who gives a If you could pass the bar and you can't win a case, who gives a We were just about, we were just like cogs in the machine going to the next level. And this, these org fairs, they seem to believe that the networking done at Cooley was their ticket to millions of dollars. No, that's not what's going to happen here. What people don't understand, and I'll be very clear about this, when you come from a fourth-tier law school, you have to do it two times harder than the next person. There's a stigma on you, right? There's a stigma that you couldn't get anywhere else. So let's bust our ass and let's do this. And you know me, studying at 2 o'clock in the morning on Saturday night was not too much to ask. I always figured you can't do enough studying and preparation. Like the one thing nobody could teach you is work ethic. If you work your ass off, you're going to be successful. It's Saturday, I'm working in the office, okay? That's how you have game. And... About second year of law school, with all these org fairs and this presence of who was going to be who, there was this sense of entitlement. Well, I'm here now, so I'm entitled to it. You're not entitled to shit. You are entitled to put your client first. You are entitled to work your goddamn ass off. You are entitled to put the law above your own personal life. That's what you're entitled to do. You're not entitled to money or power. You have to go grab that shit. You have to earn that shit. And the org fairs to me were like almost contradiction to what the real world was going to be. Just because you were networking well in law school didn't mean shit about the real world. You had to get to the real world. And then you could learn about networking. So, always had an issue with that. Remember, deans used to say to us, well, if you don't network in law school, what are you going to do in the real world? And I used to think, well, if I don't get to the real world, who cares? My Uncle Sam told me a very powerful story once. It was 1977, I believe. And the Phillies were playing the Dodgers in the National League Championship Series. And it was best of five back then. And... The Phillies were down two games to zero. And they were up in game three. They were up like two runs late in the game. And my uncle told me this story. He goes, I said they should get Steve Carlton up in the bullpen. Steve Carlton was their ace pitcher. He was an amazing pitcher, and he could shut a team down. And Uncle Sam goes, hey, get Lefty up there. Lefty was his nickname. Get Lefty up in the bullpen. And the Philly fans that he was around are like, no, no, you can't get Lefty up. Lefty has to pitch game four. So the Phillies don't get Steve Carlton up in the bullpen. They lose the game, and the season's over. My uncle taught me a very powerful lesson that day. You don't get to game four unless you f***ing win game three. Think about that. You want to go do org fairs after you won a couple jewelry trials, you're making big money? Knock yourself the f*** 
out. But if you don't win game three, there is no game four. So I understand you want Steve Carlton to pitch game four, but if you don't win game three, it's over. So let's go win game three. We'll worry about game four when it comes. But there is no tomorrow. And if you didn't get the grades to take the bar, and you didn't pass the bar, there was no tomorrow. Then this was all bullshit. You're 150k in debt. And now, what do you got to show for it? If you don't think people can make it, then don't take them. But if you give somebody a chance, let's try to make them a good lawyer. That's my opinion on it. So the org fairs and everything else, what should Cooley have been doing? Teaching people how to pass the bar exam and then get jobs in the real world. How about teaching somebody to be a trial lawyer? One day, somebody's going to sue a law school because they made it through three years of law school, passed the bar, I don't know what the f*** to do in the real world. I remember at Cooley, there used to be professors that would teach their version of the law. And their version of the law may not have been what was on the MBE. Here's the deal. If you mastered that professor's version of the law, but it contradicted what was on the multi-state bar exam, and you need to pass the bar exam to practice and feel the law, that is the equivalent of the junior varsity coach teaching you a different offense in the varsity coach. So you mastered the JV offense, and now you know what the hell to do at varsity. How does this work? You have to teach to the bar exam, and then teach how to practice law and find a job. Jesus Christ. This is not rocket science. And the SBA, <laughs> that was fucking awesome. The Student Bar Association. What a bunch of arrogant pricks. They thought because they won Cooley student elections, which was just a popularity contest, that they had a ticket to success. I literally have seen several members that were very successful in law school call me in desperation for doc review jobs. The whole thing was a scam. Here's the deal. If you were student body president, okay, if you were student body president and you were in charge of several orgs and you got the grades in law school, but you couldn't pass the bar exam, can you practice the field of law? Can you practice as a lawyer if you can't pass the bar? Somebody help me on this one. And many talented people do not pass the bar exam because the education they have in law school doesn't teach them how to do that. Here's a newsflash. You doing Barbary for two months is not enough to pass the bar exam. You have to start prepping for the bar way ahead of time. You have to put everything to the side. Jobs, relationships, good times. You basically, in my opinion, for six months have to be on a mission to pass the bar exam. And if you do that, you start entitled to shit, but it gives you a right to be in the club. Being the SBA president, 
winning a book award, being in 10 different orgs, or even getting the grades in law school doesn't mean anything if you can't take it to the next level. I'm sorry. The reality is, everything we were taught in law school did not play out in the real world. Just didn't. You were sold a bill of goods. One more time. I got the grades in college to take the LSAT. I took the LSAT. Horrible as it was to get into law school. I got the GPA in law school to take the bar exam, then I passed the bar exams. And none of that means shit in the real world. Now it's about who, because nobody really cares. We're in a jury trial, it's funny, because I see Bill McCrary out here, who's the best trial lawyer in Michigan, in my opinion. Him and Scott Grable just won a huge case. Bill killed it at trial. Scott did so much stuff in pre-trial, it was a great team effort. Good win by both of them. And as they were protecting somebody from going to prison for a long time, nobody said to Bill or Scott, by the way, what did you get in torts too? He gives a f It was all bullshit. Orientation was trying to teach you how to be a good Cooley student. The org fairs were teaching you how to network within Cooley. And the SBA was telling you who was going to be a leader tomorrow. And I'm here to tell you it was all bullshit. Didn't matter, guys. One thing a standardized test can't measure is heart. But understand this. You have to buy into the system on this level. If you don't make academics the priority, they can't see your work ethic. So for everybody in law school, here's my advice. Don't worry about briefing cases. Don't worry about going to the bar. Don't worry about being in the SBA. Don't worry about the fucking orgs. Day one. Download every model answer your professor has on the portal. Practice every multiple choice question you can. Because at the end of the day, there is, and Bill McQuarrie just made a straight, strong message here. Bill said, I think it's a three-year mission to pass the bar. I cannot think of one thing I learned in law school that's helped me be a good lawyer. Me neither, Bill. Get the grades you need to sit for the bar exam. Bust your ass in the bar exam, and then go trail an experienced lawyer and learn the lay of the land. That's it. Those three years should be a mission for you to fight for your dream. That's what it's got to be. Nobody's going to care 10 years from now that you were head of the Student Bar Association. Nobody's going to give a shit. They're going to care that you did a downward departure for your client. They're going to care that you came back with a not guilty verdict. They're going to care that you got a dismissal because of an amazing motion. That's what they're going to care about. That's what you need to care about. So, while Cooley and I have no love loss, this is like a dose of reality for everybody. You want to make it big? Get the grades to give the opportunity to do that. Make it a mission. Pass the bar exam. Go out there and kick some ass. Nothing else matters if you're going on this journey. Okay. Enjoy your weekend, guys. 
The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.